Luke chapter 9, 1 to 17. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. In whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there are about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray together as we stand. Almighty Father, um, as we come now uh, to wrestle with your word and to consider your word, um, Father, we ask that you would be very active among us right now and, and do in us uh, something of the same thing that you did uh, through the disciples as they went out uh, speaking and preaching and healing and delivering from evil spirits and all of those sorts of uh, dramatic things um, we ask that you would do something of the same thing now uh, you have not retired and we need your active work so make yourself plain now make yourself vivid cut through everything that obscures you in us and make us see the glory the reality the truth of who you are and then deploy us to be ambassadors uh, of the kingdom jesus came to establish so we look for you to do that now in jesus name amen please have a seat and uh, keep your that second reading, the one from Luke, in front of you. And um, friends, we have today, we're going to talk today uh, about the privilege of Christian mission. 
Uh, why? Well, um, if you look at that second reading, it's all about how Jesus sends out his 12 disciples. Sometimes they're called apostles. The word apostle means ambassador. These are the 12 closest followers of Jesus, and he, he sends them out on a preaching tour, uh, on a mission. And they were supposed to preach, and they were supposed to heal people and things like that all over uh, northern Palestine. And this is an early pilot project, so to speak, um, for what would eventually become the big worldwide mission of the church. And, and here's what I mean by that. Um, over the last 2,000 years, uh, Christians have gone into uh, widely divergent cultures, wide, they've learned widely divergent languages, they've engaged with widely divergent social conditions, and in all of them, they've articulated a remarkably consistent message about uh, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and why it matters for everyone. And over those long centuries, uh, billions and billions of people have concluded that Jesus is the unexpected but perfect ful fulfillment uh, of their, their, their deepest desires and their greatest needs. And the result is that Christianity has become deeply embedded in, in cultures all over the world. Now, that by itself is a remarkable historical reality, and we get to see something of its genesis here in this reading. But it also means that we need to remind ourselves of this. If you're part of the church, and if you're part of this church, then in a very important way, you are part of this big story that starts in this reading. You are part of a mission, and that mission shapes the identity of this congregation and of your life in a very deep way. Uh, mission is baked into Christianity from the very, very beginning. And so we're going to explore that uh, today a little bit. But even as I say that, the, that mission is baked into uh, Christianity from the very beginning, and that if you're a Christian, you're part of this mission, it, as soon as I say that, I can hear objections. Uh, for instance, I can imagine some people saying something like this. Um, ugh. I don't want to talk about mission um, because Christians are always telling other people how, what to think and how to live. And, um, and I, I think that, I can imagine somebody saying, I think that that's um, intellectual imperialism. And it's a power play. And uh, your, Christians are just trying to get control over other people's lives. Can you, can you identify with that? objection? Or I can hear somebody else say, when the church talks about mission, um, I feel manipulated and I feel guilty, and, and that's terrible, and I don't like that. Or I can hear somebody else say, uh, I don't trust church. I don't trust the church because the church has an agenda. The church always has an agenda. The church has, sometimes it's a, it's a culture agenda. Uh, sometimes it's a political agenda, and I don't trust the agenda of the church, and so I don't want to talk about mission. And then I can hear somebody else say, um, uh, I don't trust the church because the church just abuses its authority a lot, and I don't want anything to do with that. Now, can anybody identify with any of those objections? 
I think they're formidable, and I think they're important. And I also think that as, you, uh, as we look back at Jesus' original vision for mission, what we're going to find is that Jesus designed mission in such a way that it protects and pushes back on some of these abuses so that if we rediscover it, we'll, see, we'll find a healthier vision than what some of us have experienced on the one hand. And on the other hand, we'll actually discover that mission is a wonderful privilege in the Christian life. And so I want to invite you into this early pilot project of Christian mission to rediscover Jesus's original intention. Will you come with me into the passage? Here's the first thing I want to show you. Christian mission is to be a reflection of Jesus's unique power, and therefore it operates through our weakness and not our strength. Let me show you what I mean. Um, take a look at verse 7 in that uh, second long reading, and, and think about Herod for a minute. Now, Herod is a political uh, leader. He's, he's what's called a tetrarch, which basically means in that context he was upper-middle management in a much bigger Roman system. And, uh, however, within his he was upper-middle management, which might not sound that impressive, but within his sphere of influence, he had the power of life and death. Now, Herod hears about this uh, mission of Jesus' followers, verse 7, and he's perplexed, and he's confused. Why? Why is he perplexed? Why is he confu confused? Well, part of it is Jesus' followers had a very strange relationship with power. Let me show you what I mean. Um, look at the beginning of the reading and watch what Jesus gives and what Jesus forbids. Look at verse 1. Jesus called the twelve together and gave them, here it is, power and authority over demons and to cure diseases. So Jesus gives power and authority. That's what he gives. But now look at verse 3 and look at what he forbids. Verse 3, and he said to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and don't take two tunics, meaning don't take a change of clothes. Would you, what would you have thought? He gives remarkable, miraculous power. He gives something of his own power. But at the same time, he forbids that they have any of their own power. Can you see that? He says, take nothing, no food, no extra clothes, no money. Jesus sends them out equipped with nothing except for his own power. Why? Well, uh, it's important to point out that this was a temporary policy. Uh, later in the Gospel of Luke, in the book that we're reading, Jesus explicitly allows them to take uh, supplies and money and all the rest. However, when he later on explicitly allows them to take supplies, he says this. This is from uh, Luke chapter 22. Just listen. Jesus says this. When I sent you out, talking to the 12, when I sent you out with no money and no knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Jesus asks them, and they reply, we lack nothing. Now, that's a clue 
about why Jesus sends them out with nothing but his own power. Here's, here's what's happening here. Jesus is trying to uh, teach his followers that Jesus' mission is to rest exclusively on Jesus' power. In other words, not on their own personal power as his disciples. Not upon their own money, not upon their own resource. The mission has to rest, the load-bearing of the mission has to rest entirely on Jesus and not them at all. Jesus' mission is to rest entirely on Jesus' power. And that explains why Jesus wants to front load the experience of vulnerability here. So think about, think about these 12 going out on their mission with no food, no, not even a change of clothes. Um, every single day, the apostles, which means ambassadors, these ambassadors of Jesus are nose to nose with acute experience of vulnerability, an acute experience of uh, weakness, an acute experience of need. And that experience did, did at least two things. On the one hand, it glued them to dependence upon Jesus Christ. Every single morning they got up and they're like, Jesus, if this is going to work, you're going to have to deliver. It glued them to dependence upon Jesus. But then the other thing it did is that it persuaded them of the potency that Jesus gives. What I mean by that is every single time they were given food, and every single time they were invited into somebody's house, and every single time later on that they prayed for somebody and they saw miraculous healing and they saw people delivered from evil and they saw all of those things, they knew that this was not coming from them, this was coming from Jesus, and therefore it made Jesus more vivid, and it made his beauty more compelling. And even in those times where they were rejected, and they had to, you know, uh, dust off their feet as a testimony, which was a, a non-violent, non-coercive way of warning people, even when they did that, they were able to see that Jesus' was Jesus' power was potent for them even when they were experiencing rejection. The point is this. Their weakness was a gift that amplified Jesus' power for them. Now, that must have been very confusing for Herod. Um, because Herod was a man who knew how the real power works in the real world right? Uh, he knew how power worked. Herod knew that for real power in this world, you need money, and you need political influence, and ideally, you need weapons, right? And Herod was a man who knew how to use that kind of power, coercive, violent, manipulative power. He knew how to use that, you know, quite effectively. He could use money to buy people off. He could use uh, political influence to uh, coerce and leverage people or to give them a cut in on that political power, which is another way of buying them off. Or if worse come, came to worse, he could sever people's heads, which he does. Herod was a man who knew how power supposedly worked in the real world. 
But what confused him is that Jesus' mission rested on a power that worked through weakness. And that, and this is a kind of power that somebody like Herod can't control. He could never quite get these people in his pocket. The power of Herod and the power of Jesus is a crucial contrast. And Emmanuel, one of the urgent questions that Christians today need to answer is this. Will we rest on the power of Herod, or will we rest on the unique power of Jesus? How we answer that question will determine everything about us as a movement and as a church. Why? Here's why. The church will mirror the behavior of whatever power gives it security. The church will echo the ethics of whatever power it rests on to tell it it's okay. What does that mean? If the church rests on the power of Herod, then we will end up just like him. Uh, we will end up manipulative, and we'll end up compromised and corrupt and coercive. We'll end up like the kind of church that a lot of us have been wounded by in the past. If the church rests on money, we're okay as long as the cash is there. Then we'll end up, you know, like a business and little more. Or if the church rests upon political power, then we will end up being indistinguishable from a political interest group. But when the church rests on Christ alone for our security and for our identity, then we begin to become ambassadors of a better kingdom. So the question is, what power are we going to rest on? If we rest on the power of Herod and it is a constant temptation, we will betray our Lord, and we must fear that profoundly. And we've got to look to Jesus, because Emmanuel, Jesus holds out to us a power that is beyond our imagining, but it's a power that comes at the cost of our own weakness. And therefore, we need to seek a weakness that glues us to Jesus Christ in moment-by-moment moment and breath-by-breath breath dependence. That is the happy place of flourishing for a Christian believer. So, Christian mission is a reflection of Jesus' unique approach to power, and therefore it operates through our weakness. But now here's the second thing. Christian mission is a reflection of Jesus' unique authority, and therefore it's deployed in service. Go back to verse 1. Um, Jesus uh, gives the disciples power and authority. Power is the ability to do something. Authority is the right to do it. And if you look at verse 2, you can watch what it is that Jesus gives the uh, disciples the authority to do. It says this, Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. Now, keep that in your mind and contrast uh, the, the authority that Jesus gives with the authority that Herod exerts. If you look at verse 9, 
Herod uh, uh, expresses his authority, so to speak, by cutting off John the Baptist's head. He cuts off one of a dissident's head. Now contrast that with Jesus. Herod versus Jesus. Herod kills. Jesus heals. Herod destroys. Jesus restores. Herod uses his authority to dominate. Jesus uses his authority to serve. And why is this contrast important? Well, because it opens up the message of Christian mission and why it's such a beautiful message. Think about it. Uh, Jesus' disciples, they're going around proclaiming, verse 2, the kingdom of God. Uh, put differently, they were going around telling everyone that a new king had arrived, namely, this guy called Jesus. And they were telling everyone that God was going to uh, rule the world in a new way through this man, Jesus Christ. Now, as they went out and they proclaimed that, I could imagine people coming back with a kind of cynical objection. I could imagine people coming back and saying, oh dear, who needs a new king? I roll. I could imagine somebody saying, I know all about how kings work. They all work like Herod. They kill and they coerce and they oppress and they, uh, and we don't need any of that. But then, the disciples backed up their message by healing people and by driving out evil spirits, by giving a liberty that they could never achieve for themselves, even if they had all the autonomy in the world. And I imagine that that got their attention. And it got their attention because everybody wants to be healed, but it was not just that. The healings that the disciples uh, performed were like a down payment. Um, they, they were a little bit like an appetizer, a little bit like a teaser. And they gave a taste and anticipation of what this new king is all about. And it ends up that this new king, Jesus, is all about liberating people from evil. He's all about restoring the things that are broken. He's all about forgiving the guilty. He's all about imparting a freedom that we can never achieve for ourselves, even if we had all the autonomy in the world. Try thinking of it this way. Um, Herod, imagine how Herod um, cuts off the head of John the Baptist, cuts off the head of a dissident that opposes him. And, and if you think about that, um, that, that is an image of, in a way, all that's wrong with the world, right? What's wrong with the world? Uh, corruption, violence, oppression, injustice, death. It's all right there in how Herod treats John the Baptist. And everybody agrees, am I wrong? Everybody agrees that those are terrible, terrible things. And yet, despite the fact that those are terrible, terrible things, and generally people agree that those are terrible, terrible things, those terrible, terrible things just don't go away. They don't go away. Despite there's a consensus that they're bad, they hang around, and they hang around most disturbingly deep within all of us in little form. But then imagine the healing ministry of Jesus. His healing is an image of all that our world most desperately needs. Uh, we need healing in our bodies, but not just in our bodies. We need healing 
uh, from corruption and violence and oppression and injustice and death around us and also inside us. If you know yourself at all, you know that many of those realities are present within your soul and mine, at least in seed form. And the message of Jesus' disciples is that Jesus not, came not just to heal our physical bodies, but also he's the one who could deliver us from the evil that clings so closely. So that the healings verified the message that Jesus is a unique kind of king and that this unique king uses his authority to serve and amend all that's broken in us. Now, even those of us here who are kind of skeptical, you know, you're like, I don't know if I buy it. Well, fair. Consider this. Can you see why this would be good news? I mean, can you, can you imagine? Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was somebody who used authority to serve and to heal and to restore all that's broken in this world? I mean, you can see why that would be good news, right? And if you imagine for a minute, for the sake of argument, that all of it's true, can you see why sharing this message uh, wouldn't be intellectual imperialism. Can you see why sharing this message, if it's true, wouldn't be forcing your beliefs on somebody else in some kind of coercive sort of way? If this is true, then sharing this message is, the, is an urgent message of hope. If it's true, it'd be irresponsible to keep it to yourself. And then, if you're skeptical about all this, just think about this. Um, we have more documents about Jesus than any other ancient figure in history. And because of that, we know a lot about what Jesus' opponents said against him. Uh, they leveled lots of accusations against him. They, uh, they argued that he was politically disloyal to Rome. They argued that he was religiously disloyal to the religious establishment. They, they made many arguments and accusations against Jesus. But you know the thing they never accused him of? They did not accuse Jesus of fraudulent healing. And one of the reasons for that may well be that there was just too much evidence of the legitimacy of these healings, the reality of these healings, for that accusation to hold. And the point is this, Christian mission is about sharing good news, and there's good reason to think that good news is true. And Emmanuel, for those of you here who believe this good news, let me ask you this question. How is Jesus calling you to be an ambassador of that good news? And as you consider that question, think about three things. Uh, think about your prayers, think about your words, and think about how you serve. First of all, think about your prayers. Um, remember that uh, mission rests on Jesus's power and it operates through our weakness. If that's true, then it means that prayer is the pathway of power into your life. How do you pray? And for whom do you pray? And can I encourage you to pray for your friends, your family, who do not know Jesus? Pray for them by name. Secondly, consider your words. Uh, here at Emmanuel, we like to talk about describing the beauty of Jesus Christ. Uh, and that skill of describing the beauty of Jesus Christ with, with accuracy, but also with joy, um, that is one of the keys to becoming an ambassador of Jesus. 
do you enjoy describing the beauty of Jesus? Are you learning to describe his beauty more accurately and with greater joy? Consider your prayers, consider your words, and then consider how you serve. And when I say consider how you serve, I'm not talking about ushering at church or doing anything at church or volunteering at church. I'm talking about outside of church. I'm asking this, how do you serve Christ at your job, in your home, in your neighborhood, in all of your life outside the church? And we need to be able to think something like this. Uh, Jesus' authority is expressed through serving others. And Jesus' authority wants to resist evil wherever it finds it, and resist corruption wherever it finds it, and resist greed wherever it finds it, and, and pride and injustice wherever it finds it. And instead, Jesus' authority wants to heal and reconcile and restore. And therefore, we must ask the question, what does that look like in my industry? What does that look like in my job? What does that look like in my neighborhood and in my home? How can I be an ambassador of Christ's authority in the unique context in which he's called you? Consider your prayers, consider your words, and consider how you serve. So, uh, Jesus' power works through our weakness. Jesus' authority works out in service. And then the last thing is this. We can only ever be faithful in mission if we ourselves are deeply satisfied by Jesus. Look at the end of the reading. So, Jesus' disciples come back. They tell him all about how it went, uh, and I'm sure they're exhausted. So, Jesus says, well, come away and rest. Except, irritatingly, a crowd discovers them, and so they can't rest. And they spent the whole day ministering to this giant crowd of many thousands. And then at the end of the day, the disciples look at each other and they're like, hey team, we're, we gotta have, we're gonna have a problem because these are like 5,000 hungry people and there's no food. So they go to Jesus and they quite sensibly say, hey Jesus, you need to, you need to close the close shop, send them home. Uh, but then Jesus looks at them and uh, verse 13, he says, you give them something to eat. Now, that was ridiculous because the disciples didn't have food for thousands of people. But of course, that's the point. Jesus is bringing them back to their weakness and their limits because that's where they get to experience his power. Um, that's where Jesus wants to bring you every single day, Emmanuel. Do you feel weak? Vulnerable? right up against the edge of what you can do, beyond what you can do, wonderful. And as the disciples watch, Jesus uses his authority to serve. He took the bread, he took the fish, he says a blessing, verse 16, and then he begins to give it to his disciples. Now there's layer on layer of meaning in this story, but at least part of the point is that the disciples need to be served by Jesus before they can serve on Jesus' behalf. And they receive the bread and they give it out. And then at the end, every last 12 of the disciples get a whole basket full of leftovers. One for each of them. As if to say, Jesus is all that we need. 
And Jesus, in fact, gives more than we need. And what Jesus gives satisfies us like a fine meal down to the deepest parts of our lives and ultimately every aspect of our life. And of course, the bread that was broken that day points forward to when Jesus himself gives all that he is for us when he dies upon the cross. And when Jesus died upon the cross, God was exerting his unique power into human weakness. And God was exerting his unique authority by serving sinners. And Jesus gave his life so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be healed, so that we could be restored forever. So Emmanuel, Jesus is calling you into the, minute, into the story of mission. And he's calling you in by saying, look at me and consider my beauty. Because it's when you see the beauty of Jesus Christ and you see him serving you that then you will want to describe his beauty and to reflect his beauty in greater and greater ways. And that's when you'll realize that Christian mission is a beautiful privilege. It's beautiful because it shares in the beauty of Christ himself. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.